While we like to focus on sectors or markets or to dig into the details and data in the commercial real estate business today, every so often we pull back the lens with a guest who can help us take a more forward-looking perspective. On this episode, a global strategist for one of the largest financial institutions on the planet helps turn our focus towards megatrends and the major economic and other forces that are shaping the future. Everything is happening here and now, and I think that's probably one of the things that investors need to understand, that when they are focusing on their daily lives, they are missing the big picture. That's Chaim Israel, a managing director and global strategist at Bank of America. A native of Jerusalem, he joined the Bank of America organization roughly 18 years ago before the great financial crisis. So he worked through a world-shaking event or two in his career. Today, he leads a thematic investing research team, keeping an eye on major trends and the future. Coming up, demographics and technology, ESG and the pandemic, the micro versus the macro, and whether there is even a difference between short-term and long-term thinking anymore. Global strategist Chaim Israel with ideas to challenge your worldview. Megatrends. I'm Spencer Levy, and that's right now on the weekly take. Welcome to the weekly take, and this week we are delighted to have Haim Israel. Haim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're delighted to have you, Haim. So, for the benefit of our listeners, please define what a global strategist is at Bank of America. Growth strategies is a position that try to look at the world, try to look at the big picture and see how the world's going to develop. My specific position in Bank of America, head of global thematic investing, is trying to look at the future and trying to identify and understand how our future is going to look like and how it's going to be shaped, what forces are really driving it, good or bad, uh, and how it eventually is going to be shaped. We call it as megatrends what's really impacting our life, shape our life, and move our life to the next level. So, Haim, you spend a lot of time talking about megatrends. There's a lot of them, but just for our audience, just list some of the megatrends that you follow and you think are most influential on your outlook. Of course. So, first of all, how we define megatrends. We define megatrends as a trend that will change the world. Trend come and go, technology come and go, Sometimes they stick but, and they are getting their place in the world, but they're not changing our world. We're really looking to see what's about to change the world here. Um, we are looking at three categories when we define megatrends. The first category for us is innovation. So you'll find megatrends like privacy, like cybersecurity, like uh, automation, AI, and so on. The second category for us is people. No, we have to think about aging population. We have to think about Gen Z that is entering into the picture and they are very different from anyone else. We think about inequality. We need to think about education. We need to think about the bottom billions. Um, And the third category for us is Earth. Everything that is impacting our planet. We are running into water scarcity. It's not being discussed enough. We have a trash problem that's going to about to change the world. Food scarcity and food crises, climate change, Technologies around that. All those things are about to change the world. That's how we are thinking, good or bad. And that's very, very important. We are not 
focusing on only what's going to make the world a better place. We are looking at what is about to change the world, good or unfortunately bad. Well, it can't be more important to think about the mega trends because so often our clients, Bank of America's clients, get focused on the day-to-day. They get focused on the micro. When the micro might matter in the short term, but in the long term, it's really the macro. And so talking about that short term versus long term, that's one of the themes in some of the pieces that you've put together, Haim. Tell us about that. Our approach in Bank of America, my approach, is that there's just no differentiation anymore. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of investors are doing. They are trying to differentiate the short term and the long term. And I, and I keep asking myself one question. When we're approaching thematic investing, when does the short term ends and the long term begins? We don't get it yet. Things are happening faster and faster. Mega trends and and themes are realizing faster and faster. And we live in what we call a tech acceleration era. Things are just moving faster and faster. So what's the differentiation of between short term and long term? Week, month, year. Uh, let's think about it. No, two years ago we've been all quarantined. The world stopped never ever happened in history that 85% of the planet was shut down. Never. Nor in pandemics, world wars, never. Two years ago, we can't even remember that. That shows you that just no short term and long term anymore. So yes, my definition is more long term, but there's just no long term and short term anymore. Everything is happening here and now. And I think that's probably one of the things that investors needs to understand that when they are focusing on their daily lives, they are missing the big picture. CBRE is the largest real estate services company in the world. And so I try to put everything eventually into a real estate box. And so the real estate box I might put the pandemic into is what's the implication for the long-term demand for life sciences, research, and real estate, right? That is a practical implication of it. And from our point of view, it's obviously accelerated. Um, but my question would be, do is there a risk of overplaying a mega trend like the pandemic, say, oh, now everything needs to be healthcare or life sciences or research related, um, rather than looking at a more of a distance view of saying, here's one mega trend, here's another one's demographics, here's another one that's technology, which is the one that's going to drive me? But just in that one micro context, life sciences, what's your point of view? Of course. So I think when we're talking about those kind of things to answer your question, what we need to understand that those big defining moments event like COVID that we had are not changing anything. What they are doing, they are accelerating a lot of the trend that we've been saying. So we've been talking about life science for a very long time. It's a thing that we call the future human, the combination between men and the healthcare services and how we can live longer, better with the help of technology. What happened because of COVID, everything got accelerated dramatically. The timeline got accelerated dramatically. This acceleration that I talked before that, we are moving much more online, the work is hybrid, is changing, and so on. We, we had a timeline before COVID. What happened because COVID? Nothing has changed, but the timeline has been brought forward. So what we've seen that those defining moments are actually like tectonic shifts that accelerate a lot of the trends. They're not changing anything. They're actually reinforcing a lot of the stuff that we've said is going to happen. Let's go to another mega trend, probably the one I point to more than any other in my presentations, which is demographics. And demographics has a lot of different components to it. We did have a, another guest on the show who you may know, Prag Khanna, who is a demographer. He's terrific. And he talks about the shifts of people 
from continent to continent. I look at that, I, but I also look at people within continents of moving from the eastern and western states to the Texas, southwest, and Florida. But I also look at the aging demographic. I look at the world of getting older. Japan probably started the trend, then Europe, now even China is showing that challenge. So, so are we. Demographics, how does that play into your analysis? That's probably one of the most important megatrends that we are talking uh, and, and speaking right now. What we're seeing in the world is completely unprecedented. No, I'll just give you one example. Ever since the dawn of humanity, ever since fire, we've been living in a world that the number of people on the planet keeps increasing. In our lifetime, for the first time ever in history, we are about to get to what we call peak people. The number of people on the planet is about to plateau. We're seeing a plummet in birth rates, with the, and the other side of the equation that we're seeing an increase that uh, ne never happened so fast in aging. Life expectancy is increasing. So we have more elderly population. The number of 65 years and above is going up, while the number of five and below is going down. Actually today, right now, in North America, there are more grandparents than kids. More 65 years and above than children under 15 right now as we speak. So think about the consequences. The equation is very simple. More 65, less children under five, peak youth, peak labor, and eventually peak people. Parag Khanna uses the term peak humanity, but it's the same concept. We're going to be in a world of declining population, which is the first time in human history. 30 years, give or take, the number of people on the planet is about to plateau, start coming down roughly around 10 billion people. We're at eight. First time ever in history. Think about the consequences. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you one consequence, and I'd love to hear others. I'm sure there's thousands, which is if you're dealing with a, a country that's trying to grow, using GDP growth as their basic metric, growth has to do with two things, population growth and productivity. That's economics 101 for the uh, weekly take listeners. But if we're missing population growth, what do we do to grow? How do we allocate resources probably is a better question because um, elderly folks need healthcare resources more than younger folks. My point of view is that we have to start rethinking about all those models. And probably the models that we've seen in the past, as you said, and you're completely right, productivity plus population growth, we might need to rethink it. Um, this, this future that we're seeing and accelerating all the time, our key take is that all those doctrines, all those models that we've been accustomed to, we learned in university, we learned in school, we have to start rethinking about them. That has huge consequences, I'm completely right. I don't have all the answers. Government don't have all the answers because I don't think they're thinking about it right now. 50% of countries on the planet, their population is shrinking. Their birth rates are below replacement rates. Productivity, because of that, eventually will come down and it will be up to technology to bridge the gap. But we'll have to start thinking in very new terms in the future. Less working hands, pension deficit, which are going to go through the roof, the working market, um, who's going to subsidize, and eventually jobs are going to have to be replaced, education system, so many things which we'll have to start rethinking. Um, the bottom line, and this is the thing about thematic investing. We are calling the trends, and we are seeing the trends. It's going to be up for countries to understand what they are doing with this information, and governments to understand what they are doing with this information. Sometimes, as we're seeing, Governments are just missing it and not starting to do the work today. But if we are saying that in the next 
10, 20, 30 years, we're going to get to the point that we're getting to pick people and pick youth and pick labor, governments need to start doing the work today. Look at Japan. Japan, for the last, I don't know, give or take around 10 years, sold more adult diapers than baby diapers. Today, there are more pets in Taiwan than kids. Governments have to start doing the work today about how to adjust, adjust the economy, how to adjust growth rates, how to adjust the job market, the work market. There are uh, many challenges ahead. Well, I certainly hope governments tackle that because I know that there are many people that are looking to abandon a growth standard. I've been on debates where people say, you know, GDP and growth is overrated. We should go for a, quote, standard of living model. And they actually point to Japan. They say, well, Japan hasn't grown in 30 years, but they have the highest uh, life expectancy. They have great infrastructure. They have great health care. And their technology, for certainly for elder care, is among the best in the world. Do you see there is a risk of a global push towards standard of living as the model versus growth? It could be. We can see that because, no, eventually growth will have to come out from other sources. We keep saying that eventually technology is going to bridge the gap around growth. And we're probably going to need to look at the model that we will work less um, life expectancy keeps increasing, but in turn, we have the technologies today, uh, automation, AI, computers, to make our work much more efficient. Things that we've done in the past that took us you know, weeks, days, whatever, we can do that now in hours, we can do less, be even more, more productive than we've been. Leisure time probably might increase, but we'll have to think how the economy is subsidizing and supporting all of this. We've been living in a model, for example, that we are retiring in our 60s. This is not a model that is right in this time. If, if we are the generation here today that live to our 100 years old, it's not going to be abnormal. What it means that if we are, let's say, entering the job market in our early 20s, we can't retire at our mid-60s and le- then live 40 years, the, no economy, doesn't matter how will you look at it, what model will, you, will we embrace going forward, no model can support 40 years of pension, no models. So either we have to think about external job market, the pension system, something has to change. And the work has to be done today. You can't go out in one day, think there's going to be a pension deficit that's going to you know, kill everything. We actually quoted $400 trillion dollars global deficit pension by the middle of this century. Remember, the global GDP is roughly around 80, 85. If you're not doing the work today, you're probably not going to be around tomorrow. It's a massive challenge. Well, there used to be an expression, a billion here, a billionaire, soon you're talking about real money. Now you're saying a trillion here, a trillion there. <laughs> That's real money. <laughs> yeah, the, no, the trillion is the, is the new billions. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I better work harder. Um, so... We've been talking about how the aging demographic is going to change a lot of the policies that we need to put into place for pensions, for retirement, but it's not without controversy. So megatrend, on the back of a, a notepad, we can agree on where we should go, but then the implementation of it. Do you think about that? Yes, we do think about that. And when you look at history, the big changes happen when there were crises. Uh, and we're heading into a pension crisis. There's no doubt. There will be countries, there will be places that the pension deficit is going to be so big that people are not going to be paid. And when the reality, when people are going to wake up to reality, understanding that they are living longer and longer, um, something will have to change. So governments are doing the work. And you said, you know, give the example of France saying, you know what, we have to start thinking about a pension system. 
Um, but the crisis did not happen yet. People are still not feeling it yet, and people will. So it's going to be a massive challenge. It's a huge challenge for how I market it, how I package it, how I deliver the message. That's a massive uh, challenge for governments. It's easier to do it when you have a crisis. I hope we're not going to get there. Let's go back to technology, and this could be the whole show on technology, but one of my favorite books, I'm, I'm not sure if you read it, it was by Robert Gordon. It's called The Rise and Fall of American Worker Productivity. It's a big book. It's about 600 pages long. I give it to people as a doorstop or as a book, whichever they prefer. Great book. But one of the main concepts in the book is that notwithstanding all of the great advances of technology, he said that the rate of productivity gains among the average American worker while going up is going up at a decreasing rate. His basic thesis was that productivity is not going up fast enough, even with technology. How do you respond? I think that it is going up. Uh, the way that we need to do, think about it is how we measure it. I think there's some kind of a misunderstanding around productivity. We have more leisure time today in the Western world. I think that's a fact. Everybody understand that. Uh, no, this model is about working 24-7, sleeping on our desk during the weekends. Those are things that we're seeing less and less. We have more leisure time. Is leisure part of productivity? Yes or no? It's part of consumption trends. It's part of human health. It's part of a lot of other things which have not been measured up until now. The way that people have measured productivity up until now was how much output we are doing in work, how much input versus how much output, and we're doing the calculations. This is our productivity. That's, I think that's wrong in the new world. We have to start thinking about, okay, this is our leisure time. Family time is productivity? Yes or no? It's utility. It's utility. <laughs> Probably it's utility. That, that's, that's a great way to look at it. Mm -hmm. But I'm a big believer that this is part of being more productive. I think that no, more leisure time and, and developing my own has huge psychological and healthcare consequences that eventually increase my own productivity. We have to start thinking in other terms. And that goes back to the beginning of our conversation about economics and about models that has to start changing. Now the world have moved to five days a week. No, only like it was 15, 20 years ago, we worked six days a week. More discussions all over the world right now moving to four days a week. Um, did productivity go down? If you think about it, we went down one day of work which is if no, just do a, a, a very simple calculation, like roughly by 15, 20% decrease in our work, and productivity only went up. So now that there are discussions about going back to four day a week, I don't think the productivity is gonna go down. I think the productivity will stay, give or take as it is. Plus, you mentioned technology, we practically have the tools to do our work so much more productive. The other thing which I keep asking myself about productivity is whether me, you, all of us, we are being measured in the right way, meaning our abilities, are they productive enough? Well, let's bring it back once again to real estate. The return to office is, uh, is still a question mark. And what you're suggesting, Haim, is that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, certainly from a productivity perspective. I think there might, there might be some that might differ with you. And those that might differ with you, I'm aware that certain tech companies are saying that certain types of creative work have fallen off. Certain types of innovation have fallen off because of that. What's your point of view? I think we have to take it with a grain of salt. I think the model about going back fully, full-time to the office, as we've done before that, is somewhat changing. 
Um, and we can allocate time to do stuff more efficiently in other ways. So the hybrid model is definitely taking off. I'm a big believer that you cannot just work from home. It's not working. Um, you still need to have office space. You still need to be in the office at least part of the time. You need the communication with people. I think that's increased productivity dramatically. Brainstorming with people, social skills, everything around that is extremely important for every job. However, when I'm going to work, I'm thinking about other stuff which were not that productive. My personal experience, I live in Israel. When I'm in Israel, of course, I go to the office. I spend an hour and a half to each direction, three hours a day, go back and forth to the office, three hours. This could change. You know, those three hours, even if I just allocate one hour to work out of the two and the two other to consume, to be with my family, to develop my leisure time, that is massive productivity gains, even for my work. You know, I, I've just added one more hour of work. So... I think that from a pure mathematical point of view, it does make sense. However, from a pure psychological point of view, brainstorming, social skills, whatever, you cannot give up on the office. You have to be in the office. So this hybrid model, what is the right measurement and what is the right, let's say, balance between work and, and home, that needs to be decided. And I think that over time we'll know. Clearly, one of the key uh, megatrends out there is uh, concerns about the climate, climate change, energy usage. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on how you analyze the future use and creation of energy. I'm a big believer in climate change. And I think that we are right now in a position that, to some extent, we are moving to net zero, not because of climate change. And that's where all the progress that we're seeing right now. Let me explain what do I mean. For years and years, I was born into a world, I'm 50 years old, I was born into a world of discussions around climate change, global warming, no matter how you call it, was already happening, was already going on. So it's nothing new. It's been going up for decades and decades we knew. But I'm asking myself, we've achieved more progress in the last give or take or a year than we did in 50 years. What changed? What happened? Actually, if you look at that, just the last six months or eight months or so, we achieved more progress than we did in, in all this time plus. What have changed? What have changed is that it's no longer, the path to net zero is no longer a purely environmental question. Environment is one aspect, but the bigger question we need to ask ourselves right now is political, geopolitics, and most important is economics. And those three things are actually what's pushing us today to net zero or moving to energy alternatives right now. What, let, let me explain. If we learn something in the war in Ukraine, everything is a weapon. Food is a weapon, energy is a weapon, supply lines are weapons, everything could be weaponized. And if countries understand one thing, is that I cannot be rely on other sources of energy, that I cannot be self-supplied. I need to be resilient. I need to, be, I need to supply my own resources. Um, remember one thing, more than 80% of the planet is importing fossil and not exporting fossils. So 80% of the planet, slightly more than 80%, is actually at the mercy of other countries. So moving to alternative energy now has become a geopolitical and political interest. And alternative energy, I have to be, I have to be clear, alternative energy does not necessarily say it's going to be clean energy. It includes other forms of energy that can be self-supplied. So if I can develop my own fossil resources, great. If I'm using 
of course, renewable energy, wind, solar, and so on, batteries, storage, and so on. Another one, nuclear, hydrogen, whatever, I could be self-supplied. So there's a geopolitical interest. And then we're moving to the second element, which is actually the economic interest. And what we don't get right now is that we live in a world of inflation. We live in a world that everything, prices goes up and the, the era of zero inflation is behind us. Today, to produce energy with renewable sources is cheaper than fossil. It depends on the country, it depends on technology, it depends on subsidies, it depends on many, many things. But on averagely speaking, it's roughly up to 25% cheaper to produce a unit of energy with renewable sources. And if since the 70s, oil prices are up, give or take nine times, renewable energy prices, elements, and technology went down 99.7% and now cheaper. So we have the economic interest to move to other forms of energy and countries which are struggling with the cost of living and range from the people and everything have an interest to move to whatever's make me cheaper. Uh, so now you have a combination for the first time of a geopolitical interest, of an economic interest, plus an environmental interest to move to alternative energy. As long as the debate was purely environmental, the, no, we walked and we progressed so slowly. Now you're seeing the big move to alternative energy that makes me much more optimistic that we are actually on the path to net zero because it's no longer an environmental question. Now, Jaime, you said something a moment ago that, uh, I'll paraphrase, that we are no longer in a world of low inflation. Let's talk about that. I don't necessarily agree with you. Inflation may be higher than the zero that we had. I can agree with that. But are we in a world with excess inflation moving forward? Let me rephrase. We are back to an era of inflation because that's the normality. What we had in the last 10 years is not normal. Zero inflation, massive stimulations, you no know, breach of all fiscal spending, and of course, negative interest rates. That was not the normality. We are back to normality. I do agree with you that overall, when I'm looking at the mega trends of the world, they are deflationary, not inflationary, but we have to look at timeline here, and that's extremely important. The first stage, that's actually going to be inflationary because part of the reasons that you know, we spoke before that about climate and about investments and so on are very inflationary. We are seeing the world of countries starting to be more and more independent. The era of globalization is starting to shift. We are moving to a deglobalized world. Never going to go back to silos, of course, but the whole trend of globalization changing, and that requires massive, massive investments. Investment in infrastructure, investments in supply lines, investment in, in new resources development, and that's inflationary. The second stage, once we're going to get past that, I agree with you. There are two elements here which are very deflationary. The first one is demographics. You mentioned that. Uh, although there's still a question mark about fiscal spending because of that. And the second one is technology. Technology is a very deflationary thing. Of course, there's always investments. And in the first stage, and we'll need you know, infrastructure, we need data centers, and we need telecom equipment, and we need fiber, and we need all this stuff. But overall, technology decreased cost over time. Let me give you, you know, probably the simplest uh, example about how technology decreased uh, overall cost of living dramatically. No one is talking about that. When we're talking about semiconductors, we keep talking about how fast the processes are getting stronger, faster, all the time. Actually, if you think about Apollo 11 moon landing mission, the processing power we have today are one trillion times 
faster and stronger than the one that used to that put the man on the moon. Actually, in the palm of your hand today, you have more processing power on your phone than the entire moon landing mission. Um, so that goes up. But what people are not thinking about, that it's getting so much cheaper. Every four years, the cost per calculation go, goes down 90%. So if you practically do the equivalent since Apollo 11 moon landing mission, it's down 99.9999%. It's actually getting today calculations for free. And we're getting all those massive technologies for free. So that decreases the cost of living dramatically that people are still not talking about enough. Um, if I would do the equivalent on top of oil prices before that, I would do the equivalent to oil prices. The equivalent will be that you are today fueling your car with one cent a gallon. That was the equivalent. So um, that is a massive, and, and everything is being technologized, right? Everything is going online. We're getting more and more online all the time. That decreases inflation over time. Well, before we get to some wrap-up questions, you're the global strategist for Bank of America. Any particular industries you might recommend to our listeners say, gee, this is what we're recommending to our clients? We live in a world of technology, so you can imagine that. We live in a world of everything that we set up until now, and you can take what eventually for the long term, what should win here. Um, we live in a world of higher healthcare expenditures. Health tech will provide the question. We live in a world that we are energy transition is happening faster and faster. So everything around that should benefit. We live in a world of more expenditures of infrastructure. So no, everything that we spoke up until now, it's very obvious to see how the world's gonna shape. But I think that even with that recommendation, and I'm, I'm with you on, on basically everything, you could still see in many of these industries like electric cars or certain types of green tech, there have been some country, uh, companies that were super popular that crashed and burned. Um, so it really doesn't come down to just the technology, just the megatrend. It comes down to the management acumen. you agree? I agree. This short-term and long-term stuff that we spoke before that is critical, I think, for your questions about companies. That should be a key focus. If we lived in, I think it was 1965, the average life expectancy on the S&P 500, meaning the amount of years a company stayed on the S&P 500, was 62 years. This is down to 12. Companies are disappearing very fast because they're missing the big picture. They are missing technologies. They are missing the changes that we keep seeing right now. On the other side, we have mega companies that their market cap is bigger than countries today. We all know them, know the big tech companies, and, and, and we know what's going on. Companies have to start focusing on the long term, understanding that the long term is the short term. CEOs on Wall Street spend most of their time on the coming quarter not on everything else. And I think that eventually, that's a mistake. So uh, final thoughts, Heim. If somebody is looking to analyze the megatrends, um, what do you read? What should they do to get anywhere as close to uh, understanding how the big picture really impacts them on the small picture? Sure. So the way that we work is we talk to everybody. Never, ever limit your source of information. Talk to governments, talk to companies, read whatever you can. Don't think that media channels are biased one way or another. Just listen to everybody. Uh, the way that I do it is I try to speak to as many people as I can in many industries, in many companies, many clients, uh, governments, academics, everything around that. The amount of knowledge that has been missed here is, is just overwhelming. If you really want to understand what's going on in the world, never ever limit yourself to one 
channel of information. So let, let me dig into that. So back in the 1970s, there were three news channels, and it was uh, Walter Cronkite um, and a few other folks that gave you all your news. And the world was a better place in some people's opinion. So are we in a better place today than when people got their sources from the same place? We have more. Uh, I think that, first of all, yes, we're in a better place. And I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that people are doing, that they are biased to, you know, to a source of information X versus a source of information Y. Um, you need to listen. I, I'm a big believer you need to listen to everybody because you don't understand which kind of information you can get from who and what. We live in a world of fake news. We live in a world that a lot of the data is manipulated. We understand that actually fake news is being tweeted five times more than real news and growing more than three times faster than real news. But if you are not listening to everything and trying to understand, then be very critical and ask questions. I'm a big believer that you're never getting um, uh, information as just as it is. You have to always be criticized about it. This is how you're getting your data. Maybe this is the way I've been raised and I've been in ICE for so many years that, you know, everything has to be questioned again and again. But I found that if you're limiting yourself to one source of information, knowing some information is manipulated, knowing some information could be wrong, you're missing so much value. So read and listen and talk to everybody. Don't put on your uh, blinders, uh, whatever they may be. So on behalf of The Weekly Take, I want to thank Chaim Israel, global strategist for Bank of America, talking with us about the big picture, the megatrends. Chaim, great job. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. For more on our show, please visit our website, cbre.com slash theweeklytake. And while we're thinking about the future, remember you can reach out to us with the Talk to Us button on our homepage. And on a future episode, we might just follow up on your feedback. And don't forget to share the show, as well as subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Our immediate future is filled with lots more informative, thought-provoking insights, including CBRE's U.S. Office Occupier Sentiment Survey and other thought leadership from around the world. For now, thanks for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.